Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Should someone who ran a black site for torture be the head of the CIA? We'll think through the nomination of Gina Haspel. Film contributor Milos Stalik talks about the opening of the Cannes International Film Festival. We'll find out about fair trade gold. And on Global Notes, the death of Avicii and the big business of electronic dance music. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Gina Haspel's confirmation hearing as CIA director is wrestling with issues like rule of law, impunity, and what good your moral compass is if you don't use it. Here is Haspel answering a question from Democratic Senator Martin Heinrich. I think that we should hold ourselves to a stricter moral standard, and I would never allow CIA to be involved in uh, coercive interrogations. Where was that moral compass at the time? Senator, that was uh, 17 years ago, and it's, you know, CIA, like uh, the U.S. Army and the U.S. Marine Corps, um, is an organization, it's a large bureaucracy, and when you're out in the trenches at far-flung outposts in the globe, and Washington says, here's what we need you to do, this is legal, the Attorney General has deemed it so, the President of the United States is counting on you to prevent another attack. legal. I'm sorry. I know you believed it was legal. I want to see, I want to feel, I want to trust that you have the moral compass that you said you have. You're giving very legalistic answers to very fundamentally moral questions. Senator, I, you know, that we've provided the committee uh, every evaluation since my, my training report when I first joined in 1985. I have conducted myself honorably and in accordance with U.S. law. My parents raised me right. I right. know, I so know the difference between right and wrong. That's Gina Haspel and Senator Martin Heinrich this morning at their confirmation hearing as CIA director. With me is Faz Shakir, National Political Director for the ACLU. Thanks a lot for joining us. Hi, Jerome. Thanks for having me. What do you think when you hear that conversation going on and her defense of her position? And she's evading all of the difficult questions and all the difficult issues. Uh, The moral compass that she wants to uh, project isn't being shown. Uh, And in the toughest moments in her career, she has acted uh, in discordance with the rule of law. And that is the most concerning thing about her nomination now, is that under a president who similarly has instincts to be uh, acting outside the bounds of the rule of law, and has indicated he loves torture, would love to do even more waterboarding, uh, would love to go beyond what Gina Haspel is already uh, personally involved in. Is she going to be the person who stands up to those instincts, who serves as a check on him? I don't think so. 
Is Gina Haspel being held to a standard that is different from the one that John Brennan was held to when he was put in charge of the CIA? Democrats voted for him. Now Democrats are largely going to vote against her. Well, two, two points on that. One is that certainly ACLU took a position of uh, raising serious concerns of John Brennan at the time. Uh, I remember it was back in January 2013. We raised concerns about his engagement in torture and uh, authorization of rendition and a lot of other um, programs that the CIA was carrying out. Uh, obviously, as you suggested, uh, he survived those challenges. And one of the ways he survived it was by saying that he wasn't directly involved in the line of authority. Authority, that these weren't things he personally was involved in or signed off on, and that had sway with a lot of Democrats and Republicans in the Senate. Gina Haspel is a very different case in uh, a new low for our democracy. She's somebody who was personally involved, per- personally involved as a as an authority in the torture itself. So, uh, you know, in detention site Green in Thailand, a black site where they were waterboarding uh, at, at least two detainees. Uh, many CIA officers themselves were skeptical and concerned about the types of tactics that they were carrying out. At one point, Abu Zubaydah, one of the folks who was tortured, uh, uh, literally died. He he stopped breathing and they had to resuscitate him. Uh, there were so many people who were concerned on the ground and they were told by their supervising authorities, one of whom was Gina Haspel, keep pushing, keep doing it, keep uh, going ahead with this. And so I think you're in a situation with Gina Haspel's nomination that that you have somebody who is directly accountable for the torture that occurred in the direct line of authority. And if you care about torture, if you care about the way we conduct um, ourselves according to rule of law, this is should be a red line. I'm talking with Faz Shakir, National Political Director of the ACLU, and we're discussing the nomination of Gina Haspel as CIA Director. There was another moment in the hearing this morning that went right to your point about what would happen uh, today if something similar happened, and this is Susan Collins uh, doing the questioning of Gina Haspel. As a candidate, President Trump repeatedly expressed his support for waterboarding. In fact, he said we should go beyond waterboarding. So if the CIA has a high-value terrorism suspect in its custody and the president gave you a direct order to waterboard that suspect, what would you do? Senator, um, I would advise, I do not believe the president would ask me to do that, Um, but um, we have uh, today in the U.S. government other U.S. government entities that conduct interrogations. Um, DOD uses the Army Field Manual, and they conduct battlefield interrogations. And CIA has incredible expertise it can bring to the table in support of those interrogations. The FBI has its authorities to conduct interrogations. And as you know, we have the high-value interrogation group. So, you know, I, I would be advise anyone who asks me about it that CIA is not the right place to conduct interrogations. We don't have interrogators, and we don't have interrogation expertise. 
Faz Shakir from the ACLU, what do you make of that explanation? We should not be doing interrogations. We don't have interrogators. Well, what you didn't hear in that answer was a clear and direct no. That's what you needed to hear from Agena Haspel. If the president asks her to engage in torture again, what would she say? And what you got is a long-winded, evasive, uh, well, I, I try to duck it. I'm not sure. I don't know. Right. But no clear no. And I think this is one of the challenges of the Haspel nomination is that at one level, they want to present her as a good soldier, right? Just carrying out orders. Don't blame her for the torture that occurred. She was simply in the line of command and acting according to President Bush and Dick Cheney's uh, uh, desires, right? That was the case. That's one of the cases they make. Then on the other hand, they want to suggest, oh, she, she's a professional at the CIA who can and will be a good check on Donald Trump. And in this moment where she's offered that opportunity to serve as a check, she, do, she, she dodges it completely. And I think it, it, the only major marker in her life that we know of uh, where, she, where her moral compass was demonstrated was when she kowtowed to the administration, gave in to their worst instincts, conducted torture, carried out tactics that she rightly should have known were outside the rule of law. And if asked again, seemingly suggests that she'd be open to it. Uh, from a president of the United States who said he wants to do it. They, she, it, it. Even today, Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris, asked her, with hindsight, would you say that that was wrong, what you did in the past? No, couldn't, she couldn't say it. She couldn't say it. So here you have a nominee presenting clearly that she doesn't have the moral compass to stand strong against the president to be an accountability check on him. And I think it, it, it creates grave concern that in a terrible moment, a terror attack conducted out by a, a, a brown-skinned Muslim, that he'll want to go on, the president will want to go on a rampage uh, and, and abuse the rule of law, and the CIA director may be uh, an accomplice. She came right out and said at the beginning of that question, she doesn't believe the question the, the president would ask her to do torture, to do waterboarding, even though the president's position is that he would like to go beyond waterboarding and thinks that's a good idea and a good way to get information. Uh, yeah, it's kind of it's a hypothetical, right? She's just conjecturing. Well, I don't think the president would ask me. Of course, of course he would, but the, because you're in a hypothetical environment, we don't know exactly what he would do at that point in time. But he has made clear, as you suggested, Jerome, that it, his instincts are he wants to push the envelope. He wants to go beyond. And all of us live in grave fear that if there is a terror attack uh, conducted by a Muslim, because of course if it's carried out by a white gunman in Las Vegas, it's not of the kind of terror that Donald Trump wants to react to. So if it's carried out by a brown and Muslim shouting Allahu Akbar, he's going to shut down the borders, he's going to conduct grave surveillance, he's going to reopen Gitmo, put more people in there, uh, expand detention uh, authorities. These are the kinds of things we're trying to guard against to make sure that there's someone somewhere who is in his ear saying that you can't do that, Mr. President. This is, this is violative of the rule of law. And I, I, I think we all have grave fear that, that Gina Haspel hasn't proven to be that kind of person per her record, and wouldn't be that person in that moment. If Gina Haspel had come out today and said, I would resign my position if I was asked to do something like that, I would scream um, from the highest mountain that this is an illegal thing, I have learned my lesson, 
would you vote for for a CIA director? It would certainly be far more persuasive in terms of her moral compass. If, if I was advising her, uh, if you want to demonstrate that you really do have learned a lesson and you really do care about this issue, that it is a red line for you, that you aren't going to go down that road again, that yes, that is exactly the kind of answer I would have suggested, that, that you say you're going to lay down and, and resign over this matter. Um, uh, that's not what she offered, of course. I think even if she did offer that, there would be serious concern from us that the one time when you had that opportunity to do so, you didn't. And then later in your career, decided to destroy evidence, uh, videotapes that would have documented what you did uh, earlier. And so I think there's some deep black marks in her record uh, that she just can't get over. And, and it seems like uh, the atonement that we're seeking is just not coming from Gina Haspel. If she were to do some kind of atonement like that, she would be saying, I did illegal things. Is that uh, a problem for, you know, uh, somebody in government? Well, she still has the same defense that she would purportedly have, right, which is somebody asked me and ordered me to do it. That has been her argument. Um, she's evaded the questions about how she was directly involved in authorizing and approving of torture. And that's what I think this country is trying to seek in terms of a true reckoning, a true rendering of our role in torture to move past this. We've passed laws, right? John McCain has led a couple of efforts to crystallize in U.S. law that torture will not happen again. And nevertheless, you have a president who campaigns aggressively on it, gets elected, talks openly about his desire to torture, now wants to surround himself with people who are more predisposed to thinking that in emergency moments we can do things outside the rule of law. And if we as a country don't come to terms with this, we will find ourselves sliding back down the slope into this morass. This, it's been a terrible black mark on our history. And one of the things that's least appreciated about it is that it screws up our justice system. We've got people lingering in Gitmo who will never, can never be charged because they were tortured. Uh, we can never bring justice to people. We can never have true transparency accountability. All of the records about that period are behind closed doors. No one can ever know about them or read about them. It's just terrible uh, for us to serve as a model to the world with this kind of record. It, 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 it's awful, and we should have a true accountability moment, and Gina Haspel presents it. Faz Shakir is National Political Director for the ACLU. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Gina Haspel and her nomination as CIA Director. I appreciate your time. The Cannes International Film Festival is underway. Our film contributor, Milo Stalik, is there. We'll talk to him after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Film contributor Milos Stalik is at the Cannes International Film Festival in the south of France, as he always is every year. Nice to talk with you, Milos. Hey, Jerome. 30 years this year. Good to talk to you. Wow, 30 big ones. Uh, <laughs> decades in France. You poor guy. Yeah, absolutely. It's a total sacrifice. Milos, the opening night film at Cannes this year is Everybody Knows, and it's a star-studded Spanish film, Penelope Cruz, Javier Bardem. Oscar Farhadi directed it. He is the Iranian director who uh, won the Oscar for a separation recently. What's it like? Well, Penelope Cruz saw a separation, fell in love with it, and decided that she wanted to work with Oscar Farhadi, who now lives in France principally. And so he jumped into this project. It was an original script. It's set in a very small, very picturesque village in Spain, in the wine-growing country, story of a family, a daughter of the family who lives in Argentina and is married, comes back uh, for a wedding, and then... Things go wrong, her child disappears and ends up being kidnapped. And this sets into motion all kinds of family relationships, bitterness, unresolved past, relationships, sexual trysts, uh, (laughs) children whose parents are not the parents that they think that they are. So there's so much that Farhadi pushed to get into this film that ultimately it sinks of its own weight and goes nowhere. And Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz, who are both capable of being very good actors, show, in this film at least, that as good as actors can be in a well-directed film, they can also be equally bad in a badly directed film. And here they are mostly bad. Penelope Cruz suffering for two hours and 12 minutes. Okay, uh, that's a big uh, thumbs down for everybody knows from Milos Dalek. Well, let's move on to another film, uh, Donbass. It's a film about what's been happening in Ukraine. It's not a comedy. I'll warn you, Sergei Loznitsa, who's the Belarusian-born Ukrainian filmmaker, among his films are documentary about Maidan. He makes equally documentaries and fiction films. This is fiction set in the Russian-occupied borderlands of Ukraine, where there are these undetermined warring factions, paramilitary groups, set in really gruesome episodes at time, but really trying to depict what it's like to be there. Total lawlessness, corruption, fighting factions, exploding shells, uh, mines, the critique of the media, television hiring actors to be on TV to show us just how good what they are calling the new Russia uh, really is. Extreme poverty, people living underground in unheated cellars, corrupt politicians, uh, lawless groups. So it really tries to give us a slice of what life is like being on the ground in this disputed section between the Russians and uh, the Ukrainians. So is this a pretty good movie? It's a tough movie. It's a tough movie. You know, visually, we don't really see what it's like to be there. And this tries to put our feet on the ground and show us what it must be like to really be there. It's not a film that engages your empathy. It's pretty dispassionate. But it really does bring you into that situation and you really realize that this situation is still unresolved. It has a long way to go and people are really suffering every single day on both sides. 
All right, the film Donbass, and we are listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Film contributor Milos Stalek is at the Cannes International Film Festival. We're going through a couple of the early films that have shown, and there's a Kenyan film at Cannes, and this is not a typical thing to have a Kenyan film at Cannes, and it's called Rafiki. What's going on with it? Well, I mean, make films in Africa is always very, very tough. I can't remember a single film that came out of Kenya that was shown at Cannes. Very, very few African films, for that matter, are shown here. Rafiki was controversial just about as soon as Cannes decided to show it. Its story is based on an award-winning short story. Is the love relationship between two high school girls, both of whose fathers are local politicians running against each other. The two girls fall in love and, of course, immediately run into the homophobic, uh, very strict, anti-gay Kenyan society. It actually has a pretty peaceful and good, hopeful resolution. But, of course, they go through an awful lot trying to keep their love together. All right. It sounds like a takeoff on Romeo and Juliet with rival politicians or something. In a way, it is exactly what you're saying. And actually, one of the fathers, the father of one girl is more accepting, whereas the other one is pretty down on her, turns the other girl to London. The film immediately after Khan accepted it was immediately banned by the Kenyan government. They tried to withdraw it. Of course, they accused it of trying to encourage homosexual lifestyle, the film censorship board. But Khan stood firm refused, and the film had its premiere here today. It's a very simple film, quite engaging, has a lot of music numbers. Uh, It's not complicated filmmaking, but it really has heart, and the audience that I saw it with really appreciated it. And who's the director of this film, Milos? The director is named Vanuri Kahiu, but it's such a rarity to see a film come out of that culture and really try to be authentic to the situation there and also speak against the homophobia that exists in so many countries like Kenya. All right, Milos, uh, what else are you looking forward to at Cannes this week? Well, first of all, there's the new Lars von Trier film. You know, Lars von Trier, who was banned, banned from Cannes yeah. after his anti-Semitic comments a number of years ago, has now been invited back. <laughs> Although he's not in competition, his new film is being shown out of competition. It promises to be quite violent. It's the story of a serial killer. Uh, well, that's <laughs> not much that... to look forward to, Milos, the yeah, anti-Semitic it's, it's, guy in his serial killer film. No, exactly. And then, of course, everybody is speaking about how this is the first festival without Harvey Weinstein in a very long time. You know, there's a big focus on women filmmakers. There are more women filmmakers in competition than in previous years, although still not enough. The jury tries to be more balanced with more women. Kate Blanchett is the head of the competition jury. There's a new film by Spike Lee called Black Klansman, story of an African-American cop who infiltrated the KKK. I guess it's a real true story, and uh, Spike Lee is already quite outspoken about it. And it's the 100th anniversary or birthday of Ingmar Bergman. There are two documentaries here showing here about Bergman, one of them called Bergman, A Year in a Life by Jay Morgan Magnuson, which I saw yesterday, which tries to do way too much, but... Filmmakers like Ingmar Bergman are born once a century, so I hope that we get one in the 21st century. We don't have one yet. Milos Stalik is at the Cannes International Film Festival. We'll check in with you again next week. Nice to talk with you. Great to be here, Jerome.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Chicago is the largest fair trade city in the U.S. This year, for World Fair Trade Day, the good news about fair trade comes to Michigan Avenue. A magnificent mile of fair trade is Friday. We're going to broadcast this program live from the Fourth Presbyterian Church and talk about ethical trade. With me is Catherine Bissell-Cordova from the Chicago Fair Trade Organization that puts this whole thing on. Great to see you, Catherine. Nice to see you, Jerome. This is exciting. Usually we go out to the uh, Daily Plaza and hang out there and have a fair trade fest. And now you're, you've, you've taken it to the heart of elite shopping. We have. As fair trade has grown, we had it in nine years. Um, we were in Daily Plaza and you were there for most of those. So thank you. Um, but as fair trade grows, we were thinking to also not necessarily want to be outside in Chicago in early May um, with the weather. So weather dependent, we decided. But more than that, we thought, let's take it up a notch. Where are people shopping most? And then we it, it became obvious that we should have it in the Magnificent Mile, along the Magnificent Mile. And Fourth Presbyterian Church has always been a very solid supporter of fair trade. So we approached them and they said yes. And so now it's actually, that's the hub, but it's going to be in other locations around there as well. So you're doing some fun stuff. You're going to have a ethical fashion show. We are, which is pretty amazing. We're having it starting at 1.15 in the sanctuary at Fourth Presbyterian Church, which is very exciting for us. And there's some it's going to be very high fashion, lovely, lovely designs, professional models, professional hair and makeup, all sorts of things. So people can come for free for, for a free. ethical fashion show. They can in a gorgeous setting. If you've never been to Fourth Presbyterian Church, it's gorgeous. So that will be from one fifteen to one forty five, and then we'll... Um, head out of the sanctuary and wend its way up and down Michigan Avenue, accompanied by students from Whitney Young High School with signage talking about uh, the dangers of fast fashion versus the benefits of ethical fashion. So that, that sounds super fun. And you're having a fair trade luxury boutique to to show people on Michigan Avenue exactly what is going on with fair trade. We are. We're having two pop-ups that day. There's a fair trade bazaar at Fourth Presbyterian Church throughout the first floor and under the cloisters. As well with with over uh, two dozen locally owned Chicago fair trade business members, but we are also this year debuting a luxury boutique pop up at 900 North Michigan Avenue um, with some extremely lovely handcrafted items that I think people will be delighted to learn our fair trade, and that will be there Friday from 10 to 8, but also Saturday and Sunday. As well, so the fair trade luxury boutique goes the whole weekend, and Susan Wheeler is here. She is participating in the luxury boutique. Her jewelry is going to be there. It, she focuses on responsible jewelry, and uh, Susan is the founder and of the Chicago Responsible Jewelry Conference. She's a member of Ethical Metalsmiths. She's involved with Fair Trade Gold, which is something most people probably don't even know exists. Thanks a lot for joining us, Susan. Thanks for having me. Um, how did you get into ethical jewelry? How did you decide to put your foot down and just say, I'm just going to deal totally with ethical jewelry? Well, it's a growing movement and within the jewelry industry, but it's one where we are really able to make an impact um, as we grow. In jewelry, our supply chain goes to some of the most at-risk um, communities in the world. Um, for minerals, for manufacturing, for all gems. sorts of things, gems and gold. And how did you get 
to the point where, where who is this organization that does Fair Trade Gold? It sounds interesting. Well, Fair Mind Gold is the group that I just got back um, from Columbia with visiting the mines. And um, they help the artisanal small-scale gold miners. They have active mines that they certify so that um, these mines are like a fair trade level certification. They're in environmental standards and social standards and in work conditions and um, and gender equality. So um, Fair Mind has mines throughout um, Colombia. They have a few mines in Peru that have been um, standardized in Africa. And um, so they're a wonderful organization that's able to support the miners. What's different about a fair trade mine? I mean, you're listing off some things, but I, I always think they're massively polluting. There are uh, huge problems with that. And these governments, don't they have standards that would, would make all those other things come true? Well, um, these are, we're talking about artisanal small-scale mines, which look different um, than a large industrial mine to begin with. You're not talking about a giant pit, um, but you can be talking about mines that have some of the worst practices um, in labor and in pollution and gold. There's a huge problem with mercury being put into the water systems. But when you're talking about a fair, the fair mine certification or to get something up to fair trade level, um, there's ways that you can um, – the miners can get help – learning how to mine without mercury or work towards um, being safe in their chemical practices. And worldwide, there's over 10 million uh, gold miners that are working in artisanal gold mining. And if, how many of them have gotten together in this fair-minded uh, gold group? Um, I think the fair mind, I think there's f five mines in Colombia and um, two in Peru, and there's a number, um, right now there's 20 mines working towards fair mine status. So um, there's different levels of, for the artisanal miners that you know, are working towards this status, and when they get to this status, it's like the golden status. They've really um, gone through everything in their mines to make sure it's the best standards. Do you have to pay more for this gold? There is a premium put on the fair mine gold, um, and the premium goes directly back to the mining communities. So I know in Peru they they had um, they built soccer fields, and where there had been gunfights between the two mines, now they were playing soccer together. Um, so it kind of they they can choose to spend their premium on whatever they want. There's been over um, 1.5 million going back to the mining communities through Fairmind. Um, in Colombia, I know that often, you know, they'll spend it on office and equipment, and they also can spend it on bringing other miners into the co-op and helping them get up to the Fairmind status. Do you find that Susan Wheeler Design has a advantage over other other items out there that do not have this fair-minded gold status that don't uh, aren't in the responsible jewelry? Does responsible jewelry have an edge is what I guess I'm asking. Um, I think we have an edge in how we feel about it. <laughs> 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 um, it's not for me. I don't choose to pass the, um, the premium price along um, to my clients. But um, I think it's – I'm hoping that rather than it being an edge, it's just the future. I hope that in the future we can rely on all of our um, gold to be sourced in a standard that's going to help the people that are mining it. Who's coming to the Chicago Responsible Jewelry Conference? Um, well, 
from Fairmind Gold. Um, we have a representative there um, who runs the operations um, down there, Kenny Porter. But we also have Roberto Alvarez. And Roberto is a miner that I met in Colombia. And you might think it's like if you inherit a gold mine that this is fantastic. Um, and when you go to Roberto's mine that he has with his brothers and sisters, um, it looks like an eco-resort. It's, he's along a waterfall. He's built a whole river walk. He uses the, the rocks from the mining process to you know, build these nature walks. It's, it's gorgeous. Um, but when he inherited the mine, uh, they'd been using mercury you know, since the 70s to extract the gold. And um, it's taken him eight years to wean the mine off of the use of mercury. Uh, so he's put a big investment in it, and it's it's um, it's interesting to see because we just think it's so easy to go in and change these things. And it, this has been a labor of love for him to um, work with his mind and get it up this standard. People can see your designs online, Susan Wheeler Design, and you're also in some stores um, at 900 North Michigan Avenue where you're going to be at the Ethical um, uh, the, the Luxury Boutique. I will be at the Fairtrade Luxury Boutique. And, um, yes, I'm also carried at Sabia in 900 North Michigan Avenue. That's very exciting. And it's good to hear that there is such a thing as fair-minded gold out there. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, I, I have one more question. I've heard of recycled gold. Is that better? Well, it's in the eye of the beholder, I guess, because recycled gold is great that we're not actually digging things up out of the ground. Um, and you're recycling gold. So, you know, if you have a piece that you want to recycle, you should absolutely go in and use that gold again. But Fair Mind, in my opinion, is actually helping other communities and helping other people. Well, I will look for you at the Fair Trade Luxury Boutique on at 900 North Michigan Avenue. You'll be there uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And it's going to be terrific fun, uh, Catherine Bissell-Cordova, to be at the Fair Trade uh, Festival on Michigan Avenue. It should be a great time. It will be. Also, you can hear Susan on Friday morning at 1030 at 4th Presbyterian Church. She'll be part of our first panel discussion, um, Fair Trade, Coffee and Beyond. Um, and then there's a panel at 2.30, Five Ways to Fair Trade Your Life, also at 4th Pres, and at 5.30 at North Shore Exchange in the city at 900 North Michigan Avenue is uh, an ethical closet equals a feminist action. Um, there'll also be chocolate giveaways in front of the historic water tower at Chicago and Michigan. We've got high school students from Whitney Young from St. A's in Evanston who will be handing out donated fair trade chocolate and information. And people can go to your Chicago Fair Trade website and Correct. get the full rundown of everything that's going on because yes. you've really amped it up this year. And you, you're, you're anxious for people to come out and check it out. We are. So it's chicagofairtrade.org? Correct. Catherine Bissell Cordova, thanks for joining us. And we'll see you uh, Friday for the live broadcast from uh, the Magnificent Mile. It'll be terrific. Thank you, Jerome. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international music, and we'll remember the DJ and producer Avicii. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jarrell McDonald. Tim Bergling, the Swedish DJ and music producer known as Avicii, died last month in Oman. He was 28. We just heard a bit of his hit Levels. It was released in 2011 and was a mega hit that put him into mega status. And we're going to talk about electronic dance music and Avicii now with Alexandra Blair. She is editor-in-chief of Dancing Astronaut, a dance music news publication. Thanks a lot for joining us, Alexandra Blair. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be here. I think um, a lot of people looked at Avicii as someone who kind of personified what happened to electronic dance music. It got really big, like, uh, in 2010. It became a huge uh, business, and I never really had looked at the numbers of how much money people like Avicii were making, but it was staggering. Sure, it's pretty wild, and I think uh, the comparison is a fair one to draw. A lot of his timeline looks really similar to the sort of influx of brand money and and speculators, people like SFX Entertainment and these other big conglomerates who, right around the time that he was blowing up, started pumping money into the scene and and trying to make a dollar off uh, what was going on. And so someone like him, uh, and people say he was a sensitive soul, a kind of uh, guy who, you know, he was saying himself that he should have stood up for himself more. He kind of got bossed into a doing a lot of work and a lot of gigs for these mega dollars. Definitely. Um, some of the DJs who you might, you know, whose names you may or may not recognize that are touring today, people like Diplo or Steve Aoki are playing around 300 shows in a year. Um, and like you said, some sometimes the payouts can be pretty staggering. I mean, Calvin Harris just recently signed a Vegas residency through 2020 for $280 million. Um, and so to be thrust from sort of like a, a bedroom producer, which is more of what Tim was doing, um, and he got discovered off a free platform like MySpace, and then to be thrust into that kind of lifestyle, it was definitely a culture shock for him, and it was one that we saw throughout his career that he had a very hard time reconciling with his identity. How different is it than uh, people who get really big in if they're a guitarist or if they're some kind of singer songwriter? Is it that is it um, is the trajectory more rapid and more rich than that, or is how does I mean three hundred sure. gigs a year is a lot? Yeah, it, it's definitely a lot, and I think it's probably a, a similar sort of pressure for any kind of. A musician or celebrity who who makes it to that level, I would say that especially at this time, you know, EDM was just kind of exploding, and it's a very sort of grandiose concept as a whole. Everything is bigger, louder, more, better, and there's this immense pressure on everyone involved in every part of this industry, the EDM specifically industry. Um, to to just ratchet things up in a way that's not very scalable. And so I think, you know, he happened to ascend to this crossover mainstream superstardom 
at a time when the world wanted more than people knew how to give sustainably. Um, is there something about EDM and it's it got a happy edge? It's a party music. You're supposed to make people happy and uh, in a way kind of that, that maybe other musicians don't feel uh, the pressure to make the party happen. Sure. It, it creates a kind of... It sounds like a different pressure. Yeah, it's it's definitely a different pressure. And it's something, you know, any kind of the strokes can have a horrible night and break their guitars out of petulant rage. And that just kind of feeds back into their image and works for them, um, where a DJ kind of has this this undue maybe pressure to make sure everyone's having the time of their life. And you get that in a lot of the messaging from the songs. And you definitely get that in a song like Levels or some of, other, of his other songs where you know, a lot of the lyrics allude to this deeper sadness and maybe unsatisfaction with your life. But tonight is the night and tonight we're going to have fun. And it's a it's a pretty common messaging throughout. Uh, Now, we're going to play Cut Lonely Together. And this is an interesting cut. It's kind of about what you're talking about. And, And it's also acoustic and Avicii was known for collaborating you know really widely and, and doing some really interesting things um, here's lonely together Well, the rush to my blood was too much and we fly like And I know, and I know, and I know, and I know just how this ends Now I'm all messed up and it feels like the first time My hands are tied but not tight enough You're the high that I can't give up Oh, oh That's Lonely Together from Avicii, and it was his last song released in 2017. Alexandra Blair is editor-in-chief of Dancing Astronaut, a dance music news publication, and we're talking about Avicii, who died last month at 28. Uh, what, what, what did that song say about where he was? Yeah, um, I think it's interesting to look even at the the peaks of his career and times when he was pretty objectively being critically lauded for his work. A lot of his song has pretty sad messaging to it, and he was pretty outspoken about the health issues and the sort of pressures of this industry. Um, As early as 2012, you know, it's not a a very mainstream, it wasn't reported heavily in the mainstream, but he was already being hospitalized for issues related to drinking and exhaustion uh, related to touring. And I think that a lot of this happiness tonight rhetoric kind of comes from the birth of EDM as as which we consider to be a genre within dance music, which really expanded um, in mid-2009 through 2012, let's say, right when people were kind of coming out of the haze of this post-recession world. And they were really, you know, like kids who maybe their, their parents had lost a lot and were kind of suffering, were looking for something that they could do that would be hopeful and optimistic. And I think that that's where a lot of this, this rhetoric kind of comes from. 
Uh, it would, did when EDM exploded, did it go from something like European underground uh, music that was for raves and things to gigantic festivals in the U.S.? Is that um, part of the thing here? Yeah, it's interesting because most of the brands of dance music, most of the genres that we think of, like house and techno and disco, actually were all born in the United States. They just kind of took off in Europe in a way I think is pretty closely tied to the way European cultures treat alcohol and drugs. And um, around this time when EDM was blowing up, it it had started, you know, Coachella is a good example, the Sahara Tent, which is their sort of dance and electronic programming and has long been that, started out as a small feature that, that would draw not very big crowds. I mean, Avicii performed back in 2012 to a pretty small crowd there. Um, and now that's become one of the biggest draws of the entire festival. And you see that with all the other festivals. They're booking more and larger EDM acts. I think that EDM just sort of lends itself to the festival vibe because anyone who has gone to any kind of group gathering in that manner can attest to the really infectious and optimistic energy of a big crowd gathered together to sort of enjoy music together. Well, we want to listen to another song, and uh, this is Hey Brother from Avicii. That's Hey Brother from Avicii, and I'm talking with Alexandra Blair from Dancing Astronaut about the producer and uh, DJ. Tell us a, a little bit about this cut, because it was kind of controversial when it came out. Yeah, Avicii actually premiered this song at Ultra Music Festival back in 2013. And at the time, uh, it was widely reported he was booed uh, for this song that later became, you know, I think it's four times certified platinum. And it was a really controversial point point in time that was kind of a, a mainstream crossover moment because this album actually became one of his bigger, it's his true pop record, we can say. And it, this is about the Vietnam War. There's a homage to that in the, the music video? Yeah, I mean, around this time, he was spending, Avicii was spending a lot of time with bluegrass and country musicians in Nashville um, even after the album came out, you know, he spent a lot of time there. And he you see during this period him grappling with quite a bit of unconventional um, material, especially in terms of dance music. And I think that most most critics are in agreement like this work is some of his best for that reason. What do you, where do you see the uh, electronic dance music going in the future? Uh, is this... Um, the big industry part of it, that's just a facet that is uh, the dollars are going to just keep driving this? Yeah. I mean, I think we're at a point where people are actually turning away from 
from those institutions. Um, we're seeing a rise in a lot of boutique festivals, you know, festivals that only sell maybe two or 3,000 tickets as opposed to something like EDC, which sees over 400,000 people. That's one of the bigger EDM festivals. Wow. I think people in general are looking, in, in our scene anyway, uh, for more of a boutique and a handmade experience experience, let's put it that way, whether that's in the form of the music that they're enjoying, knowing that someone agonized over every little beat in that song, um, or if it's a festival or an event that they're going to, they want to know that everything is curated and and thoughtful. Alexandra Blair is the editor-in-chief of Dancing Astronaut, a dance music news publication. Thanks for joining us and talking about Tim Bergling, the Swedish DJ and music producer known as Avicii. And we'll go out on a little more Avicii music. And thanks a lot for joining us here on Worldview. Thank you, Jerome. You will talk about the Jerusalem embassy uh, opening in Jerusalem. The U.S. embassy is moving there. It's been a controversial move. We'll talk with Rashid Holiday from Columbia University about that. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Gal Lee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.